let's get into the word of the Lord this morning. Um, I have a passage that is somewhat complex, and by the way, you can find my notes, schematic as they are, in the website, lionofjudah.org, where it says uh, sermon notes, and uh, you can follow, you know, some of my thinking through that. I may or may not uh, adhere to it, uh, but um, at least it's a good point of departure, and I hope to cover much of the material that I have uh, decided that, I, that God wants us to cover. So it's, it's, uh, the passage that I'm going to be focusing on is Genesis chapter 32, Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32, the famous passage of Jacob wrestling with the angel. How many have wrestled with an angel, either in a dream or in, you know, in their life uh, journey? I know I have not once, but many times. And I've always come out winning and losing, which is interesting, just like Jacob did. He won and he lost as well. And that's the way we want it when we deal with God sometimes and his confrontations. But I want to speak about the God who settles accounts. And then I'm putting in parentheses before blessing us. The God who settles accounts before blessing us. And um, yeah, let, me, let me just read it and... Um, because really, it's many passages that we should read, because this moment is just the culmination of a, of a process that uh, Jacob had gone through. Twenty years he spent in the house of Laban, his father-in-law, working for him, being cheated. The cheater was cheated many times. And, um, you know, one of the culminations, or really perhaps even the culmination of his uh, journey of 20 years, which started when he... Uh, when he kind of, uh, you know, uh, cheated his brother Esau out of the, uh, the blessing of being the, the patriarch of the family. In Spanish we say la primogenitura, or maybe even if it's in English, that primogeniture, which is a heavy word. It means being the first, being the elder of the family, through which the spiritual blessing ran uh, in the family. And he arrived at that stature in a, in a very dubious sort of way. There were all kinds of accounts that God needed to settle with Jacob. So let me, but let me just read about his wrestling scene, which is so evocative and so dramatic in its power and its contents. It says, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the uh, Jabbok, I guess it is, the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. He had acquired many possessions, many, many things in those 20 years of being with his father-in-law. <clears throat> After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions as well, all his cattle and so on and so forth. So Jacob was left alone. You know, many times God encounters us. In those moments of aloneness, those moments of meditation, like um, Elijah in the desert, that's why we need to take, to take time to be with the Lord, to be with God. We need to be a people who take time to meditate, to be with the Word, to take a long walk somewhere, to deliberately set time apart, to hear from God. So he sent his, you know, he knew that this was a momentous occasion. He's returning after 20 years of being away from home to confront many situations that he left behind. And so he takes some time to kind of uh, meditate. So he was left all alone. And a man, it says he wrestled with him till daybreak. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. That's one of the sort of most, uh, how should I say, uh, 
treacherous transitions in Scripture. Because this man is not just any man. This is the angel of the Lord. And, and you know, the, the narrator just says, and the man wrestled with him as if it's nothing. This is a, a, an extraordinary, extraordinary, miraculous thing. It is the, the, the angel of God himself. Um, wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, remember, this is an angel. This is a, this is a kind of a projection, a hologram, if you will, of God almost. Uh, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. It was dislocated as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is one of those samples in Scripture of persistence. And remember, we're talking about, in general, about the um, resilience and, and uh, you know, steadiness in trials and difficulties. And persistence is one of those elements that lead to resilience and to being able to get back from moments of loss and so on. And Jacob was an insistent individual. So he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, Jacob, he answered. I'm going to stop saying the man because also there's an angel and, and some translations include that. Then the angel said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel. This place which has uh, the meaning of uh, God's face, God's countenance. Saying, it is because I saw God face to face. So do you see the true nature of this man that the NIV, I think, too superficially calls man. This is an angel. This is, this is a divine being. This is a divine projection of the glory of God that can be consumed by a mere man because his true presence cannot be digested. But God wanted to have an encounter with this, this man, Jacob, and he had that power. And, so, and Jacob is aware I have, I have wrestled, I have uh, somehow been in confrontation directly with God. And so he calls a place where this happened, Peniel, meaning the face, the countenance of God. Because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel. Interesting note. And he was limping because of his hip for the rest of his life, by the way. Therefore, to this day... The Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And again, you know, I don't know why the NIV doesn't uh, mention the fact that other uh, translations, if you look at them, it says, you know, Jacob limped for the rest of his life because of that encounter with God. So in a sense, I mean, Jacob acquired huge amounts of glory. I mean, look at us speaking about this event 3,000 some years ago, uh, before, uh, afterwards, 
So uh, this was a, nobody else has ever engaged in something as sublime and unique as what he experienced. But he was also, he limped for the rest of his life. There's a lot of uh, literature in that, huge amounts of content to uh, meditate about that. He was touched near the tendon and he um, limped for the rest of his life. Every year, um, after we do our audit of our finances and uh, send it to Cass Bank, who is the bank that holds our mortgage, predictably, a few weeks later, I will get an email from Lincoln Vermeer, a friend, actually, we've known for many years. And Lincoln Vermeer is one of the vice presidents of Cass Bank. And Lincoln will always send me an email um, saying, Roberto, I have some questions for you about the audit, and would you, be, would you clarify this for me? I sent the questions to Yoxmar Rodriguez, who is our finance uh, person, and uh, it can be anything. It can be, uh, tell me why um, the Titan offerings were higher, so much higher than last year or lower than last year. Um, here you say that grants were such and such an amount received by our, our um, you know, nonprofit uh, part, and uh, last year it was much less or much more than that. Can you account for that? Um, you know, things of that nature. This year, it, one of the questions was, uh, where is the uh, PPP uh, grant loan, you know, that we got out of the stimulus, which blessed us greatly, where did the um, accountant uh, place that? Because I don't see it sort of accounted for specifically. So we had to go back and call the accountant because it was very difficult to find it. He had encoded it in uh, the grants section, which, you know, is, is sort of counterintuitive in a way, but that's where he had put it. It wasn't really a grant. So, we, you know, uh, we initially we had a little difficulty finding, you know, where that had been placed. But we did, and, you know. So every year, you know, we have these moments of settling of accounts. This bank is particularly careful about uh, doing things that way, you know, and, and they, they really want to know about our finances and even though they're very satisfied with him, let me tell you, Lincoln is a friend. And um, he always, he always uh, emphasizes to me, Roberto, I want you to know that this is not an inquest. This is just an inquiry. You know, I know that everything is good with you guys and we love you. We love your congregation. Actually, he says we are his favorite congregation <laughs> in all, in all the, the, the churches that he deals with. And uh, he says, so don't worry about it. You know, I'm just asking because I want to know about this and I want to be able to bring this to my superiors and uh, clarify about these questions, which I don't have an answer for. So his, his inquiry is um, inserted in grace and in friendship, but he needs to settle these things. He needs to account for them. And you know what? I, I believe that that's a great metaphor for how God deals with us in our own lives. God is a very, you know... Uh, a very careful, very uh, detail-oriented God. And many times, you know, in our lives, we have things that we need to settle with Him. There are debts that we need to clarify. In the course of our lives, we acquire many debts with people and especially with God. Mistakes that we made, things that we left uncleared, offenses that we um, initiated that we never really mm, clarified, uh, conflicts that we should have settled, uh, situations with parents that um, were never 
you know, talked about or with a spouse. Um, you know, uh, failures in our lives, wounds that we carry from the past and we have never really confronted and uh, set in order. And these things, they contaminate our emotional, our spiritual space. They're like little, you know, pieces of garbage that have, we have forgotten about. We don't see them. They may be ensconced in some little corner of the house, but they make their presence felt, sometimes subliminally. But, you know, we may not be aware of them, but they, they uh, contaminate the air a little bit. And, you know, God's desire is to clear these things up for our own benefit and also for the benefit of his justice, his integrity. And sometimes he needs to do those, those to have those moments of settling accounts before blessing us. I, I believe that the kingdom of God runs along very judicial, legal lines. And so does the kingdom of hell, by the way. Satan is a, a, a district attorney. He is an accuser. And that's his, that's his main function, really, vis-a-vis the, kingdom, uh, the, the children of God to accuse us. He himself is accused of having violated God's glory and has been punished eternally for it. And so he has a score to settle with us as well. And so he accuses us continually. And he doesn't accuse us to, like Lincoln, in a, from a perspective of grace. He accuses us from a perspective of hatred, envy, and um, Pharisaic uh, seeking after justice. But he does. And so uh, the, the, the kingdom of the Spirit is very much... Uh, aligned with uh, justice, law, and, you know, God sometimes wants to bless us and to lead us into greater power and communion with Him and uh, health, emotional health, but those things that are not settled, they contaminate our lives, and they hold us back, and they, um, they uh, affect our conscience, they affect our confidence. And God says, hey, I love you so much that I'm, I'm not going to let you uh, live life like that. I'm going to confront you with the things that you most fear. Because the moments of confrontation in our lives are always terrifying. They're not pleasant. But the thing is that after they have t- been taken care of, they lead us into greater wholeness and health. And so, you know, we have this God who will not be intimidated. He will not be um, sort of dissuaded from his desire to settle accounts in order to bless us greatly. And Jacob had many accounts uh, to settle. This is all prelude. You should read the, 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 this whole account of Jacob's life. I think it begins at uh, chapter 28 of Genesis. It goes on to 32, 33. It's a journey for him, physical and spiritual. And so, you know, the first uh, debt that um, Jacob acquires is uh, with his brother Esau. He cheats Jacob, uh, Esau out of um, his uh, birthright. He gets the birthright by dubious means. We won't get into that at all. Um, Because Jacob, since birth, talk about, um, uh, you know, abortion and uh, the right to life. You know, one of the key principles, and I don't want to get into a rabbit trail here, but it's important, of of the whole uh, right to life thing is that children have spiritual life and spiritual rights because they are human entities Within the womb of their mother, they have spiritual life. They have consciousness. And, uh, you know, I think the abortion uh, sector depends on this fact that, no, what you have in there is just a fetus. What you have in there is just a lump of uh, flesh. And uh, there's this dubious argument that somehow 
the mother is real estate. And whatever is inside her, she has the perfect right to do whatever she wants with it. So if she, in her, within her property, wants to get rid of that thing, it's fine. Because that's her property. That's why, you know, if the head is out or if the body is out, then you can or, or uh, uh, abort a child. But what we know is that a child, mysteriously, is an entity, is a human being. And Jacob and Esau, you know the story. They were wrestling inside. Jacob was, Jacob was a determined man right from the womb of his mother. And he was, trying, he has, he was positioned in such a way that uh, through the process of birth, he was gonna, uh, Esau was going to come out first and be the firstborn. But Jacob was trying to grab him so in order to position himself to come out first. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? And uh, unable to do that, Esau was born first, and uh, he had the right. And so Jacob then persisted even further by finding an opportunity to take his brother's birthright from him and sort of wiggled himself in a position to do that. Fascinating story. So, you know, when he flees from his brother, because his brother is so angry when he sees that he's been cheated, uh, that wants to kill him, Jacob flees. He has to go. And spends 20 years in exile. But that, 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 that debt had to be settled somehow. And then he goes into um, his uh, father-in-law's uh, journey, you know, his, his uh, territory. And his father-in-law is another cheater. And cheats him over 20 years. Making him promises, exploiting him, uh, not fulfilling the promises... Uh, you know, in Spanish we say, ladrón que roba ladrón tiene 100 años de perdón. A thief who steals from a thief has 100 years of forgiveness. And so, you know, uh, Laban really was positioned to deal with Jacob. This cheater knew how to cheat another cheater. And so Laban exploits Jacob. And then one day... Even the Lord himself says, Jacob, it's time now. 20 years, you've paid your dues, leave. But Jacob does what he always does. He flees without telling his, his father-in-law. He takes all his uh, stuff, um, lots and lots of cattle, uh, gets his two w new wives that he had, Raquel and Leah. Yeah. And so without telling Laban, he flees all his stuff, with all his stuff. And leaves, again, leaves a debt behind. He doesn't tell his uh, father-in-law that he's leaving. You see, this, this um, pattern of uh, fleeing, in a sense, he cheats his father-in-law. His father-in-law father thinks that he has cheated him because God has also blessed Jacob during his exile. This is something that we don't have time to get into. But, you know, this God who is so legally oriented is also full of grace. And he knows the destiny that he has for Jacob. And Jacob is, has the birthright. He is the patriarch. And so God is uh, dealing with Jacob, but at the same time also blesses him with wives, children, land, cattle. Well, not land yet, but cattle, yes, many, many riches. He acquired a lot of wealth supernaturally. And uh, so there's, a, there's a, another element here that we don't have too much time to discuss. This God who through our journeys of growth, you know, he disciplines us, he deals with us, and at the same time, he also blesses us. And he blesses us 
financially and, and uh, uh, physically. Let me tell you, I believe in the prosperity of the kingdom. I believe in that. And um, it can be exaggerated, but God is into blessing his children. Many times we don't expect that blessing because we've been taught that, you know, that's sort of being selfish and Pentecostal. But really, God likes to bless his children. So God blesses uh, uh, Jacob because Jacob has a spiritual stature that needs to also be translated into actually, you know, a certain kind of heft and gravitas and uh, dignity. So blesses Jacob, and then Jacob flees with all of this stuff, but doesn't have, doesn't have the courtesy, so to speak, of telling his uh, father-in-law that he's leaving. He just flees. And this is a defect that he has, and God wants to deal with that defect. God wants to teach him something about settling accounts, about proceeding in life uh, in a, in a, with integrity. So uh, Laban, when he finds out that his, grand, his, son, his son-in-law has left with his wives and so on, f- f- goes after him, seven days later, reaches him and confronts him. Interestingly enough, on the way to finding Jacob, God gives him a dream and says, be very careful not to speak um, angrily to Jacob. What a, what a strange detail. Why? Because, I mean, this is his son. He has dealings with him. He, doesn't, he wants to confront him, but you better confront him with the dignity that he deserves. He's a patriarch. He's my son, and I have chosen him for a specific purpose. So make sure you treat him with the dignity that he deserves. He may be a bit of a scoundrel, but I have chosen him, and I affirm him. And so Laban finds him. So you see this, this wrestling here of God himself, his, his uh, clarity and uh, dignity and uh, judicial ways of dealing, but also his mercy, his grace, his compassion. These two things are always in this narrative here, working with each other, in dialogue with each other. So Laban finds Jacob, confronts him. Again, interestingly enough, uh, Jacob is able to explain cer- certain things. They both clear accounts. Jacob tells him how he's exploited him all these years. Laban says, yeah, but you, you left without telling me, and you cheated me. He says, no, I didn't cheat you. God blessed me. And out of the end of that tense dialogue emerges an agreement, a pact, a covenant between the two of them that they will always have peace among them, that they will always watch out for each other, and that there will be good relationships with each other. A wonderful way of settling accounts, of clarifying things. You know, many times in our lives we... Um, we avoid difficult conversations. And I know that a lot of people in the church even, we avoid difficult conversations even among us. And we live our life, our communal life in America, sometimes under this guise of uh, comedy and, and, and relation, good relationship, harmony, and yet we have all kinds of stuff under the ground we don't talk about, we don't confront. And I have found that many times good conversations, they're very unpleasant but they are very necessary. And after they have been carried out, they leave a good feeling of wholeness. And so one of the things that we can get out of this uh, passage is the fact that sometimes we need to have those difficult conversations. Um, We need to speak clearly. We need to be upfront with people um, because out of that comes true relationships. So Laban and Jacob, uh, a conversation facilitated by God, it leads to, you know, each one expressing what they have against the other, 
finding a synthesis and a solution, and then going on with their lives. Now, Jacob can continue with his life with the dignity that he has of a man that has settled accounts. He is a patriarch. He is a spiritual priest. And uh, Laban is at peace with his son-in-law. And they both can then, then go on with their lives. And still, there's another confrontation that awaits him with Esau, because Jacob is now returning home after 20 years of exile. And he will also have to deal with Esau when he gets there. And he's dreading that. So, you know, you see God working with this uh, man, Jacob, um, and, and trying to get him to where he needs to be in terms of integrity, a walk with God. You know, God endows us many times with specific gifts. And I've always said, and it's not, it's not original to me, that every gift has, has a dark side. So, for example, an evangelist. You, people with an evangelistic gift, they, um, they are entrepreneurial. They are good salespeople. They could have been good salespeople in other things. Billy Graham, I, I remembered in watching a documentary the other day, uh, sold uh, Fuller brushes before he became a, an evangelist. And uh, Dwight L. Moody, I remember now, also he sold shoes. He was a shoe seller and was a man of great entrepreneurial um, gifts. But sometimes I've seen evangelists, people with evangelistic gifts, they can be somewhat superficial, unstable. They don't stay in one single church. They are shifty and so on and so forth. Not all, but some. It happens with people with prophetic gifts. Pastors have their own gifts. You know, pastors are gifted many times with an attitude of soberness and um, judging things and being very careful before making decisions and seeing the whole of a congregation. That's their, because the, their uh, gifting requires that or their, their position. But also pastors have their dark side, which is the we can be very careful, very meticulous. We over analyze and uh, wait until everything is absolutely clear before we take action. And many times we lose opportunities. And um, uh, we are so conservative that we lose opportunities to get, take our congregations to the next level because we're always thinking about what could go wrong or whatever. So there's always a good side and a bad side to things like that. Jacob was an entrepreneur. Jacob was a, a fighter. He was a warrior. Jacob seized the, the day. Um, and he also, you know, he, he, whatever, what is it, by crook or by what? By hook or something like that? Huh? You heard that. I, I didn't quite get it in my ears. But whatever it is, you know, he, he would get it. He would find a way around like he did with the uh, birthright. But that had his, has his dark side, you know. Sometimes he, he uh, cut corners. He cheated. He engaged in, by dubious means. Uh, to get what he needed to get. So he had this shadow side with him, and that, that's what God is addressing. You remember Elijah also? Elijah, I said earlier when we did an analysis of his moment in the desert, Elijah was a prophet with a great strength and fortitude. He was a man of confrontation. He was fighting against demonic uh, kings. And uh, so he needed a lot of strength and violence as well. And he depended on just this powerful anointing. But he didn't know the other side of God, the pastoral side, what I would call the feminine side of God with great care. And he didn't know that nurturing side of God. And God wanted to teach him about that side. 
to trust in him, to not try to get everything his way and just, because that's what he needed to do because of his anointing. But he had that dark side that he was going to die without knowing this other side of God. So God took him into the desert, brought him to the end of his rope, confronted him alone in the desert and taught him that he is in, God is in control, not he, and that he, God is always in control, that he could learn to rely on God, that he could come to God for nourishment and uh, that he could speak to him in a whisper, not just in, you know, tremendous, horrendous uh, actions. And so God is always into this. I, I think if we learned that, we would be a long way toward wholeness and toward spiritual growth, that God is engaged in pruning us, cleansing us, purifying us, taking away those things that sometimes trip us in our journeys. And we all have them. And, and uh, God, when he receives us, he's always interested in healing us through what I call psychodramas that he engineers for us in order to intervene in our insights with respect. He's like a psychiatrist probing in a gentle sort of way until we come to lucidity and to our, our self-understanding. But God doesn't do it for us. He, he, he teaches us. Sometimes he will illuminate us. But many times he will engage us in life processes that take us to where he wants us to be and where we need to be. And this is what's happening here with Jacob. Jacob is a fighter. He yearns for God's blessings, but he's also calculating, deceiving, scheming, and God wants to take care of that. God had to break Jacob. God had to purify him. God had to prune him. I think when God accepts us, he's like a coach, a life coach who sits with us. Okay, what, what are your needs? Well, how can I help you? And then crafts a program of uh, therapy for us and of teaching. And this therapy lasts a whole lifetime. And many of the things that we will experience in life will be God intervening to bring us to where he needs to bring us. And I think that's one of the most important insights that we can live with. Because I think God is always uh, speaking to us. God is always dealing with us. God is always leading us into journeys. God is always uh, facilitating moments in our lives, so many of us are so rough in our understanding of how God deals that we ascribe uh, the situation to the devil or to sin in our lives or whatever. When God is simply doing what he does, pruning, perfecting, purifying, sanctifying, facilitating moments of insight in our lives. And if we understand that, that nothing happens in our life out of coincidence or out of inertia, but really... All that happens, as the Bible says, is because it is geared by God toward the perfecting of his saints. To those who love God, all things work out for good. If I can tell you one thing about God that I see in the whole of Scripture, is a God who is meticulous, ever active, ever intervening, ever discipling us, using all the circumstances of life to bring us to where he needs to bring us. And as soon as we understand that, then that changes the way we live. Because now, whenever we are, as we are living, we are reading our lives as if it were a text from a book of literature, from a novel or a poem or, or a short story. That's the way I try to read my life. Assuming that the author has intentionality, that everything that is in that book had to be written, originated by the writer. And so therefore, he must have had a, a reason for it. And so my task as a reader, as an analyzer, if you will, of uh, the text is to, why did he put that there? Why did he make that character a woman instead of a man? Why does he describe him as uh, uh, such and such a way instead of a such and such a way? 
Because it's always, a, a, he's, the author is speaking through the narrative. And so God is always speaking through the narrative of our lives. And we do well, as a reader of a novel, to examine our lives and to ask ourselves, how is this, what meaning does this have? What intention? How is God working with me? How is he leading me to a certain point in my life? What, is he, what purpose does he have to get me to a higher plane? Unfortunately, sometimes we think it's the devil who's working. And we dishonor God. When Jesus is walking in the water at night, and the disciples have been, you know, uh, what do you call this, uh, in the, with the oars. I'm going to ask you, my, my consultant here. Rowing. Rowing. <laughs> my Spanish is tripping me. Remando. You know, when, when the disciples have been rowing the entire night and not making any progress because a storm is raging around them, Jesus comes walking, has seen them from where he was praying for them, comes walking in the waters, and what do they think he is? A ghost. And they are terrified when, when it really is the Lord coming to rescue them. And many times it's like that in our lives. You know, we're going through a tragedy. We're going through a difficult situation. We're going through an illness. We're going through a time of separation. And uh, we are saying the devil hates me or, you know, this is because I did that or I did that. When instead we should say, you know, why is God allowing this? What reason, what reason does he have? What good intent does he have? Yes, it may be severe, but I know that there's goodness in that, like Lincoln's audits. And um, how can I cooperate with the divine author in understanding what he's doing, asking for understanding, interpreting my situation in the light of the principles of Scripture? This is why you need to read Scripture. And then I can cooperate. I can go along with it, and I will get out of this situation faster. I will confess. I will speak to whoever I need to speak to, I will interpret this as a push toward a resolution, and then I will cooperate. But many times, you know, we live the life, the Christian life so superficially that we think we're just like little bunnies running around the field when we're really warriors in training, disciples, uh, prophets, teachers that God is training on the way to useful engagement in the kingdom. So, again, you know, we see God giving Jacob a, a worthy opponent in Laban to break him a bit. God preparing him in, in many ways before he returns now as a patriarch. God gives him land, gives him, you know, wives, and that's very complicated. Let's not get into that either. But, um, you know, this is, this is what was uh, meant for a man of stature, children. He has tens of them. Cattle. In, meanwhile, he has been in the furnace as well. And now he's returning for positioning and full use of his uh, stature. And so there's this dynamic here that God is using to work this man, to shape him. And then he's also setting accounts uh, with him. God doesn't want to leave him with all those inconsistencies now that he's entering into a priestly role. So God is going to break him a bit more, confront him, talk to him. And you know what? Um, I think that uh, these loose ends in Jacob's personality that God is tying, they all come together in that moment of confrontation. By the way, I have a whole thing here, which you can read if you look at the notes that I'm going to just skip in the interest of time, about crucifixion, about terrifying moments that we go through in our lives, like David with Bathsheba. 
um, like Peter with his character flaws when he denies Jesus, um, like Elijah, depressed and coming to the end of his life almost in the desert. I mean, you know, the, the, God is always into enriching, investing in us, pruning the plant so that it can grow stronger and further. And this is a story about that. And you can do that analysis on your own as you read this text. Um, that there are these moments of crucifixion. And I tell you this, in my own life, several times I can tell you that it is a, it is a pattern that is almost perfectly predictable. Before a promotion comes a crucifixion. Before God has ever promoted me to something else, He has always crucified me. And I, and I use the word very deliberately. Crucifixion. With all the agony and all the, the shame and all the humbling that presupposes it. And it is something that many of us have to deal with in our lives. And uh, you, you, you want to understand that. So if you ever feel that you're being crucified, let, let, it's, this is not a, a nice metaphor. This is not a poetic image. This is a reality in the life of God's children. And usually out of those crucifixions emerges huge amounts of life, blessing, joy. If we, like Jesus, in the cross, we let the cross settle into us. We don't avoid it. We don't try to minimize it. We let it have its way with us. And we find a strange kind of peace, actually, in letting the cross go right through us and have its way. Um, as long as we resist it, we will be like Sisyphus. We will be put to, do this, to take the boulder and just push it once more up to the top and do it again and again until we learn the lesson. Much easier to learn the lesson, to let God have his way in your life, to drink the bitter cup to not accept uh, any medicine that will uh, diminish the, the power of the crucifixion and the strength of it so that the crucifixion can have its way in your life. Learn to love crucifixions even as you hate them because it is God's way of cutting through all the gunk and all the imperfections in our lives. But um, this moment of confrontation with the angel this is one of the richest, I think, pieces of literature in all of the Bible. This man, who is, a, as I say, an expression of God, a projection of God himself, uh, how did that happen? Did, did the angel initiate this, the wrestling, or did the, or, or did the wrestler, Jacob, initiate the wrestling? I don't know. But whatever it is, I mean, it, it, the, the narrator simply says, and a man, an angel, wrestled with him the entire night. This moment of wrestling is a poetic image, but also very real, of our wrestlings with God. We are all Jacob. We are all wrestlers. We are all trying to get something out of life and something out of each other. We are always many times using illegitimate ways of carrying on the business of life. We all have debts. We all are exiles. We are, always, we are all fleeing from something or someone. And uh, God is very interested in dealing with us. And our entire life will be a protracted wrestling match with God. It will be God holding on to us. 
and uh, confronting us with His sovereignty and His Lordship. You know, w- w- without a doubt, this is a very symbolic struggle right here that God Himself originated. God allowed this to happen. God engineered it. God arranged uh, the moment because uh, it was like, it, this is for all times. This is for all the generations throughout history that have experienced this moment and have learned from it like we are today. And so he wasn't just wrestling with, with Jacob. He was wrestling with all of us. And God is uh, confronting him with who he is. You know, this, this painting of Gustave Doré, is a, is a, is a, I found it to be the most, this moment has been painted and perhaps even sculpted and narrated in many different ways throughout history. But I found this painting evocative and interesting because, you know, the way the angel, you see, Jacob is uh, a perfect figure of dynamism and, and agony and struggle and intentionality and, and um, just sheer force. The angel is simply holding him back. The angel seems to be totally in control. He's not breaking a sweat. He's taller than angel. He seems to be heftier, more powerful. Uh, and he's just like uh, grabbing Jacob and holding him like a parent holds a, a three-year-old who's having a, te- a temper tantrum. You know, just, all right, you want to fight? Okay, let's see, uh, you know, let's see who, who wins here. And, and I think that that's really a, a, such a beautiful image of God working with us, you know. I mean, God allows himself to be challenged many times, to be disobeyed, uh, to be violated in his dignity, um, and, you know, but he's in control. He's too powerful to be totally alienated by what we're doing. He knows who we are. He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. And he knows that in engaging us, there's a process of working out certain things inside of us that need to take place. It's a kind of, again, a psychological process, a therapy, if you will. So uh, I know that God is in control all the time. It's not like he couldn't, you know, he couldn't deal with this in one millisecond. But he knows that this is important for Jacob because Jacob is working out things, dark forces within him, dark inclinations that are within him. You know, getting things his way, fighting for every little thing, no matter what price, no matter what he violates. And so he wants to get the blessing from the, and, uh, you know, in, in, in that wrestling, there's parts of his personality that are being worked out as well. There's Jacob the wrestler, and he's actually wrestling with God. There's Jacob the persistent, insistent, and he just sticks to this, this fight until the end. There's this Jacob that gets things by force if, if necessary, you know. And there's this Jacob also that is self-destructive in doing that, just like we are self-destructive in our ways of dealing when we go against the principles of the kingdom of God. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, things, you know, in there. And this titanic struggle sort of exemplifies and incarnates everything that Jacob is and that is wrong with him and that is also potentially good through him. I think this image uh, says it all. Look at Jacob. I mean, he is um, one foot almost in the precipice. He's losing the battle, but he still keeps fighting. And, and uh, what he has going on his side is that he can cling on to this man, this angel. He has a passive force of clinging to, to God. And it occurs to me as I say that, that, you know, even when we struggle in our lives, even when we go through tragic moments that will, 
sort of incline us to abandon the fight, to leave God, to curse Him because the agony is too big and too intense. Let's stay in relationship with Him. Let's not deny God like, Jake, uh, like um, Job's wife. Why don't you just curse God and get it over with? What has He done for you? And uh, Job says, hey, even though He slay me, I will still bless Him. We uh, yesterday visited a, a, a family from our Spanish ministry whose son uh, died. We met him here just a couple of months ago with um, COVID in Colombia. A, a wonderful, wonderful family. We will bless them this afternoon when they come and pray for them. And, um, you know, what do you tell somebody like that? They, you know, their son that they prayed, wrestled for, travailed. The whole church was praying for him. At the age of 30, I think it is. It's taken away from them. What parent, I mean, what do, what do they feel? It's almost ridiculous and insulting to tell them anything. But, you know, they, I, I pray the Lord, I praise the Lord that, you know, I, we went, Mecha and I went to visit them yesterday, and these people, uh, I'm not, I know they'll have their dark moments. They will, I'm sure, and they have had. But I, we were absolutely astounded at their fortitude and their love for God. I mean, they were surrounded by God's people, and that's such a good thing. They were bringing arroz con leche and, uh, you know, uh, pernil and rice, and they were all eating like crazy and uh, loving on them. Uh, and I think that helps also. Community helps a lot and love the love of God's children. Always be in community. Always seek friendship. Um, but, you know, I, what astonished me is the level of love and faith that they were able to exercise in the midst of their loss. And I think we need to stay, we need to stick to that angel like glue. We need to hold on to God as He's wrestling with us and as our human nature is inclining us to flee and to say, hey, I'm done with this evangelical stuff, with this faith stuff. No more. Force yourself to stay in relationship with the angel until he blesses you. And the angel, you know, uh, the angel does bless him. And this is why, you know, um, Israel's name, Jacob's name is now Israel because instead of a deceiver, he has been promoted, but he has also been crucified. The angel touches him lightly on the hip. Look how much in control he was always. And uh, disengages Jacob's hip. Now Jacob will limp all his life as a result of that encounter and that blessing. But in the process... He actually extracted blessing from God himself because God rejoices when we force him to bless us. Another paradox. God loves for us to take the food out of his mouth like little children do sometimes with their parents. And God laughs with delight when we pin him against the wall with a word of scripture or with our faith or with the confession of uh, confidence in him. And uh, many times God wants us to travail the Syrophoenician woman extracted blessing from Jesus when she pinned him with a legal argument that Jesus was trying to use against her. Bartimaeus stopped Jesus on his tracks, screaming, Son of David, have mercy on him. And Jesus on his way and says, I got to stop. This guy won't give up. The friends of the paralytic who brought the friend down over the rooftop and delighted Jesus that they had such persistence to violate property just to have his friend, their friend blessed. They, they, you know, God loves travailers. God loves people who in the midst of their suffering 
and their natural inclination to just let go of God, doubt Him, because this is what the devil wants us. I have lost something. I have prayed for somebody. God didn't heal them. I have prayed for healing in my own life or for this job, and then I lose it. I don't have it. I thought that I was going to be a, you know, corporate executive by this time, and I'm just a, you know, a paper pusher. You know, and we are all inclined to let go of God. Do not let go of Him because He's involved in a wrestling match that will bless you at the end. And He's not, he's not mad at you. He's just a good manager, a good administrator, a good leader trainer. And, and so do not see your struggle and your loss as a curse. See it as a point of departure toward greater stature, greater blessing, greater positioning for now being used more greatly by God. And as you come into that moment of lucidity and insight and you realize what God is doing, then the blessing is uh, prophesied into existence. Then a door is open for the blessing to come into your life and to be completely applicable and functioning. This is the mysteries, the mysteries of the Christian walk. It is so sublime, and yet we kind of think that it's just a walk in the park. It's, you know, and, and the last thing is this thing about Jacob's hip. You know, um, I know this as well, which is the paradox that we will always have limps in our lives that are signs of our encounters with God, signs of our character flaws, signs of Satan's way sometimes in our lives. But that's, you know, it is like a warrior who has been wounded and carries a medal. A warrior's uh, scars are a warrior's decoration as well. They are moments of validation. Things that show that they have been there and that they used the, 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 the virtues and the attributes of a warrior. And uh, I tell you, many times we will be limping for the rest of our lives. Let's get used to that. This is the dark side of the Christian journey as well, but it's, it's the glorious side as well. Jesus, for the rest of his eternal existence, has, has a wound here and has wounds in his, he up there right now in heaven he has the marks of his crucifixion that's a mystery but the fact is that when God deals with us you know and wounds us psychologically um, or whatever way you know we should not flee from those I mean a person who used drugs a long time in their life they may have to carry a, a, an HIV situation or uh, some some other a person who lived a sensual life may carry a struggle with pornography or with uh, lustful thoughts or things of that nature, temptations, because their neurology has been marked in a certain way. And God has chosen not to take that thorn on the flesh away. And so they need to fight with that. They need to struggle with that. And they will ask, Lord, free me from that. And uh, God will say, you have to deal with it. Do it in a holy way, but you have to deal with it person who has been a compulsive shopper will always drive by marshals and ha have a little heart attack or flutter here. You know, would have to, without needing to necessarily. You know, and it, it, it can be anything. It can be an inclination to resentment. It can be an angry disposition. It can be an overly sensitive personality. It can be a love for money. Whatever it is in our lives. I mean, we have engaged in these things. They have been inscribed into our neurology. 
And, uh, you know, I think part of the journey of life is walking with those limps. They deform us slightly, but they also, you know, they uh, ornament us. And they accrue to God's glory as well. They inure to His blessing because it's a mark of our imperfection and of the fact that only He is holy. Only He is just. And if we are used by Him, it's because He is incredibly merciful, not us. And God is glorified in dealing with these imperfect vessels. And I think as we understand, you know, the Jacob journey and Jacob's capacity then to emerge from out of that strengthened and dignified, that's about resiliency, you see. Because we go through these journeys in life of loss, of death, of violation of ourselves. And if we choose to go through them with this idea of that God is in control and He's leading me to greatness, then we can emerge stronger, more beautiful, more Christ-like, um, more capable of blessing others, tolerating, loving others. That's what, that's what the journey is all about. God is not interested in just getting you to heaven. That's too easy. God Himself is a struggler, by the way. <laughs> Another mystery. God in Himself is a, an agonizer. He's been agonizing for His creation for thousands and thousands of years. And He enjoys the ride. So should we as well. The Christian walk is not a walk in the park. It is a jihad. It is a, uh, a crusade of the soul. And uh, we need to get used to it and embrace it. So that when we come to heaven, we will be say, Lord, here I am. I'm a little bit better than when I started. Because you have worked on me. You have invested in me. <sighs> I welcome Jacob in my life. I, and I, I hate him as well. I welcome the journey of Jacob, at least. And I welcome God's dealings with me. And uh, let us all go home, think about this more, and uh, ask ourselves. Because Jacob, in the end, was blessed. Read the story of his, his um, reconciliation with Esau. Amazing, beautiful. Don't, don't be concerned, ultimately. God will not let you fail him if you really want to glorify Him, if you want to become Christ-like, God will ensure that even as you fail Him, you come out ahead when He confronts you and deals with you. Father, thank You for being mysterious, thorough, meticulous, for being a God of absolute integrity because You want to settle accounts with us you want to teach us things. You want to confront us lovingly. In my mind comes the if you if you are right now, this is part of our prayer, if there is some area in your life, in my life, that we want to bring to the Lord this morning, maybe something that hasn't been settled in my life. I may be angry with God because something that He has done to me. There may be a debt that I have with someone, somebody that I need to call when I leave from here. I know that this week or next week, I will have to talk to them and clarify things with them. There may be things that I have not forgiven God for. There may be things that I have not forgiven myself for. 
There may be things that I need to come to God and say, Lord, I messed up. Forgive me. I recognize it. Now I understand. And yeah, Lord, forgive me. Or the Holy Spirit right now may be pointing at some area in your life that needs work. Well, invite the Holy Spirit. He loves a challenge. He loves an assignment. He will begin to work in your life. It may be painful at times. It may be scary, but don't worry. He's a master coach and trainer. He will make sure that his interventions are absolutely exquisitely uh, delicate and on point. Whatever it is, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, and ask Him to, ask Him to, because He loves to illuminate. Ask Him, Lord, what, what areas of my life need to be worked on? What are the things in my life that need to be resolved? Ask Him with joy and trepidation, and He will take you seriously, and He will work on them. Whatever it is, you may not have the power to do it by yourself, and generally you won't. I won't. But cast yourself into the angel's hands. Wrestle at night, even as you're afraid to see that part of you. Bear it before him. Begin now. Holy Spirit, you are watching over us right now. You are hovering over this place. You are hovering over homes right now that are experiencing this moment. Thank you for your light. Thank you for your light. Thank you for your light. It is scary. Sometimes it is harrowing to experience it. But it shines on us and it begins a process of healing. So Lord, I submit myself to you. Come, Holy Spirit. Heal as only you can. Illuminate. Examine my heart, O oh Lord. And if there's any way of uh, sin in me, lead me through the way of righteousness. Come, Lord, O oh, divine healer, and heal us. Now, why don't you yield that to him? Why don't you visualize Jesus in his powerful throne, but also full of mercy? And you are coming to him right now with this burden, this ugly, unattractive thing. And uh, you see yourself coming before the throne and placing it before him placing it before him. Say, Lord, this is too much for me to deal with. I leave it there for you to take care of it. Take it. Help me. Guide me. Forgive me. Help me to do what I need to do. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the fact that you don't leave us where we are. You love us too much not to take us into those places of crucifixion. So we especially admire your goodness and your grace. Lead us from here cleansed, full of hope, full of healing. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You are in the Holy of Holies. Just breathe in God's goodness mercy, compassion, forgiveness, endowment. Breathe it in, receive it, engage it, and go in it now from when you leave from here. Don't, don't, don't leave this place of uh, surgery. Take time to be there and let him work in me, in you, 
Spirit of God. Spirit of God.